let's look at what Republicans have been up to in the last few weeks, shall we? First of all, in Florida, the Republican-dominated state legislature passed the so-called Don't Say Gay bill. Basically, this curtails teachers' ability to discuss any LGBTQ issues in the classroom. Besides being cruel and pointless um, and um, probably not very First Amendment friendly, this law will increase bullying of gay and trans kids. It's going to push many of them back into the closet because they will be afraid to be their true selves, which in turn will make them much more prone to self-harm and suicide. In Texas, we have Governor Greg Abbott's anti-trans bill. Um, I think that Abbott is in competition with DeSantis. Uh, you know, they're always trying to out-asshole each other, I guess is the way to put it. But also, Abbott is up for um, a primary. He has a primary opponent in the upcoming GOP primary. And he's been accused of not being conservative enough, which point I'll get to in a second. Basically, though, this bill orders state child welfare officials to launch child abuse investigation into reports of transgender kids receiving gender-affirming care. So in other words, they're criminalizing parental behavior that is helping their children navigate what must be a very, very difficult and uh, at times troubling and confusing journey to become the people they want to be. As for conservative, what the fuck does it even mean anymore in this context? There are no conservatives in the Republican Party anymore. Let's just call them what they are. They're fascists. They are no more conservative than Vladimir Putin. All they care about is power, cruelty, and sticking it to liberals. That's really all they've got. So I really wish the media would stop using that word to describe Republicans. It's absurd. Then we have the America First Political Action Conference. And um, one of the worst members of Congress, and that's really saying something, it's quite a competition they have going on over there. Marjorie Taylor Greene was there. I cannot stand talking about this woman. Um, unfortunately, for our sake, she is now mainstream Republicanism. That's what she stands for. That's, she is the representative of what today's Republican Party stands for. Now, this conference she went to is hosted by a man named Nick Fuentes. He is a Nazi. He is pro-Hitler, basically. So, you know, why is it okay for a member of Congress, a sitting member of Congress, Let's leave aside all the other horrible things she's done before. Why is it okay for her to go to a conference 
that is organized by a neo-Nazi white nationalist and pay no price for it. Then, of course, there's Russia. That was a rhetorical question, by the way. She pays no price for it because the Republican Party is perfectly fine with this kind of behavior because they think it plays well with their base, which says everything you need to know about the Republican base. Then there's Russia. Steve Bannon, the man of three polo shirts, has a podcast called War Room. It finishes in the top 10 on Apple Podcasts almost every week, and it is nothing but grievance and misinformation. He recently had on as his guest, Eric Prince, who was a mercenary, and they basically spent their time talking about how great Vladimir Putin is because he's anti-woke and he's anti-LGBTQ+. So this is what the Republican Party has been up to. And then, of course, we have people like Tom Cotton, who, for some bizarre reason, thinks he's going to be president someday, refusing to respond to questions about the fact that the leader of his party is praising Vladimir Putin for being smart because of the way he illegally invaded Ukraine. They're saying that it's President Biden's weakness that led to Putin's invasion. They say that Putin never would have invaded if Donald Trump were still in office because, of course, he wouldn't have had to. Donald did more to destabilize the Western alliance than any illegal war of aggression would have. So we need to remember that the Republican Party, as it is currently constituted, is a party that has nothing to offer you but lies and cruelty. So to those of you who continue to vote for these anti-American, anti-democracy bigots, it's down to you. You know who you are. You know who they are. Yes, the Republican Party is doing its best to implement draconian voter suppression laws so we won't be able to outvote them, even though there are so many more of us than there are of them. But if it weren't for the party's rank and file, if it weren't for the Republican voters who time after time after time vote knowingly for these anti-American, anti-democracy bigots who do nothing but lie, who do nothing but enact bills that are cruel to our children, that are cruel to women, that are cruel to people of color, if you didn't vote for them, nothing the party does would matter because they would never be able to hold office again. So please, wake the fuck up or at least be honest about what it is you're actually voting for and own it. Today's guest is David Korn. Um, Given everything that's going on in the world, uh, specifically with Russia and Ukraine and the Republican Party, I could not think of a better guest to have to discuss everything. 
David, as most of you know, is Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones. He's also an MSNBC analyst. He's written three New York Times bestselling books, most recently with Michael Isakoff, Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War in America and the Election of Donald Trump. He's also the proprietor of the newsletter Our Land, which is an absolutely essential read. David, thank you so much for being here. Good to be with you, Mary. Yeah, it's actually a uh, full disclosure. We've known each other for a while. <laughs> we go way back, actually. <laughs> yeah, very secretly for a long time. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I, knew, I, I can say I knew Mary Trump before Mary Trump was cool. <laughs> before Mary Trump existed, practically. Before Mary Trump was Mary Trump, yes. <laughs> yeah. For most people. Uh, was it, can you remind me? I was trying to think. It was it was in twenty seven early twenty seventeen. I think that you first contacted me. Uh, I think it was when um, I, I'd have to go back and look. I've do, I've done this in the past, but I forgot. I think it was still during the campaign. I think it was towards the um, towards the the fall of twenty sixteen when it was still um, possible to um, keep right. a certain person out of office. So right. I think that was that was when I first when we first contacted one another and you were um, and we had, you know, a phone call or two and but you were not ready to speak publicly. And mm -hmm. I, I you know, I'll never forget. What, I, I think this was probably in the first phone call in which you uh, told me um, Donald Trump is not the most evil person in the world. Fred Trump is. And as you've written in your book, and people know by now, um, your, your perspective was such that um, Donald Trump was a de deformed human being, um, mainly because of, partly because of whatever you can decide, nature versus nurture, uh, mm -hmm. because of his relationship with his father and how his father had destroyed his older brother, which again you recount very well in your in your book, but I just remember remember just hanging up the phone and saying, "Wow, this is a hell of a story, and one of the best stories that I never got as a journalist." I I still feel bad about that, but you know, one of the reasons that is is because I, as I told you, I have been reading your work for a very long time, which is the only reason I I answered your call. Um, I, if I felt like a rock star was calling me, <laughs> so I just wanted to speak to you. And but but you had been really focused on Russia, uh, unlike most of your counterparts. And I clearly didn't have anything to add to that particular conversation. And as I've mentioned to you since, I didn't have any proof of anything except my opinion about my family, my analysis about my family. Mm -hmm. But. Your work back then, um, one, it, it made me crazy because it was so well-documented. You're a brilliant writer, and it felt like it wasn't getting any play, and I couldn't understand why. Um, well, I just felt that way throughout that whole campaign. Yeah. That um, and me and, and other colleagues at Mother Jones, and there were a few other reporters out there, but we kept digging into you know, Trump's past, whether it was his mafia connections, his you know, being a deadbeat, um, you know, his 
penchant for lying under oath in depositions. Uh, we just, you know, every week or two, we just had a, a new big blast at something. You know, and of course, it was all, we also looked at his misogynistic remarks about women. This was before the Access Hollywood tape came out, but we found old you know, audio and video recordings of him on Howard Stern's show and elsewhere, where, you know, he said again and again things that would have just destroyed any other candidate that were just awful on the show to true misogyny. Uh, I had tapes of his lectures in which he talked about, you know, how the thing that he cares most about in life is revenge. I mean, there were just so many things, either of personality or temperament, careless remarks he had made about nuclear weapons and nuclear war and of course you know legal issues involving the mob and and his own business dealings and then there was the russia thing on top of all that so um you know we we talked about you know we dug into his some of his loans and his finances and it it, we it looked to looked to us at the time that there were gigantic Organic conflicts of interest with foreign money and foreign uh, uh, enterprises that he had back then, maybe or maybe not related to Russia, but just in and of themselves with, with Deutsche Bank and other things. Uh, and I remember a couple months after Trump became president, I was at one of these fancy Washington soirees, big gathering, and uh, this woman who was a pretty senior editor at the Washington Post, who I'd known for a long time, who is a hell of a reporter and a you know a really good editor there. I mean I've very impressed you know I've been very impressed with her work for years, came up to me and said, you know, you guys were really on top of a lot of this stuff, the conflicts of interest and other things. Um, and you know, we're just catching up with you now. And I said, well, that, that's great, but it's a little late to be catching up on some of this stuff. It was just, you know, a combination of covering him as reality, as a reality TV star, um, not believing he's going to win, and not being treating him seriously. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, this goes back to something that a lot of people in the press don't want to talk about, the Russian operation. Because if you remember... And this is why, you know, we, you know we, I, we write about this in Russian Roulette, and I've always argued that I think the Russian attack on the election was determinative. I think it was a, very, it was a decisive, decisive factor. Not the only one, but in an election this co- close, there are 12, 15, 18, whatever decisive factors. And mm-hmm. one was this Russian attack because for the last four weeks of the campaign, starting on October 7th, 2016, almost every day, WikiLeaks put out a leak of information. It's not even a leak. It was stolen, stolen goods from John Podesta's emails. Mm -hmm. And the political press went gaga over that each and every day. And the idea that this was part of a Russian information warfare attack on the United States was secondary. They didn't cover it that way. It was like, ooh, look what someone in Clinton land said something bad about somebody else in Clinton land, and it's right. in the emails, and you know, it's and that was just the utter focus. And I, I, I remember at the time, um, just wondering why the fact that the United States was under attack, cyber attack by a foreign adversary, was not getting more attention. And so there were just so many things during the 2016 campaign that the media failed to cover, did not cover well. And we, you know, know what happened. Yeah, we do. 
And and but I do I think it's worth revisiting, um, not to torture ourselves, but because <laughs> we're in some ways things are worse. You know, you said that the in an an election that close, anything could be determinative. And when it's something that's nefarious, that makes it much worse, of course. Mm -hmm. But we have to deal with the fact of those 62 million people that let it be close. And then we have to deal with the fact that another 12 million people in 2020 decided to throw their Mm -hmm. lot in with, I mean, I don't even know how to describe uh, how horrible his administration was. Um, so we have 74 million people now yeah. on on board after knowing. Because in, in 2016, the only excuse you could make for a lot of these people is that mm-hmm. they didn't know. You yeah. can't make that same mistake. So we do need to go back and try to understand. And I think the media absolutely deserve a large share of the blame. I, I often... In reading your stuff and and a lot of the other articles at Mother Jones at the time, I felt like you guys were like screaming into the void. And your conversation with that person at the Washington Post kind of validates that uh, sense, which is mystifying, is a polite way of putting it. But then we also have the fact that Mitch McConnell refused mm-hmm. to um, partner with the Biden, sorry, the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. So there is precedent for what's happening now in the Republican Party, right? Oh, 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 definitely. I mean, uh, back in, you know, to remind our our listeners and viewers, back in 2016, when it became clear in the summer of 2016 that Russia was messing in our election and they had done the first big dump of stolen material from the Democratic Party at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia and create a, you know, a rift between the Bernie people and the Hillary people and try to ruin the, you know, the convention, which, you know, didn't actually happen, didn't succeed in that way. And then and the Clinton campaign got through the convention fine. But it was clear by that point that Russia was attacking. And the intelligence community and White House knew this. And it was, you know, publicly known as well. And Barack Obama reached out to Mitch McConnell, who was, you know, the Republican leader of the Senate, and said, will you stand with me against this Russian attack so we can have a bipartisan and robust and fierce response to Vladimir Putin? And Mitch McConnell said no. And the reason he said no was because Donald Trump is party's leader, the nominee at that point in time of of the Republican Party, was out there saying the attack wasn't happening, while at the same time encouraging, you know, Putin's hackers to, you know, hack Hillary and get more information. And Mitch McConnell realized that were he to join with Obama, he would in essence be saying that the leader of his party was out to lunch, which he knew. And he's known it all this time. Mm-hmm. I, I know someone, you know, uh, who has worked, you know, not presently, but worked with McConnell through some of these years. He says McConnell routinely referred to Trump as a moron. So, he, you know, he's never been fooled by Trump. 
Uh, but he made a very calculated decision to put political interests over the interests of, uh, of the nation when the nation was under attack. And in part, and this is what's really interesting here and, and kind of um, almost diabolical, because Trump and McConnell didn't come aboard, that made this a partisan fight. And so when the media and others, and, and, and it's citizens out there look at this, it just looks like, oh, another fight in Washington. The Democrats say it's the Russians. The Republicans say, oh, you're crazy. It's not the Russians. And it colors the way the media covers this. Rather than you know saying that McConnell and Trump are betraying the nation, it's now, um, you know, he said, she said, typical Washington political mud fight. And that's how it yeah. gets covered. So, yeah. um, you know, the, one of the great, it's not a secret, but I don't think what people often realize is one of the, one of the great tactics for, you know, for people in Washington is you don't have to win your battle, you know, on points or get the public to decide, you know, that you, you're right. All you have to do a lot of the times is make it look messy, make it look like there's a fight, make it look like there are two sides. And then the way it gets covered and conveyed to the public takes away from the essence of the issue and undermines the ability of the nation to do anything about it. You know, that's, you know, with, with climate change, you don't have to prove that it's not happening. You just have to raise questions and say there's a debate over this, even though there's not really a debate. And then the media doesn't do this now, but for many years with climate change, was well, there's this side and that side. Yeah. And, you know, one side was 95%, the other side was 5%. Yeah. But the way they cover it and the way it gets out to the public is, oh, there's a fight over this, a debate over this. I don't know enough, so I can disengage. And that was yeah. kind of what, what Mitch McConnell did with the whole Russian attack. And as we see, to bring it up, you know, presently, which I've been, you know, tweeting about and writing about the past couple of days, is that we let the our, we let the world down. Vladimir Putin attacked the United States in 2016, and we didn't do that much about it. You know, there were some sanctions after the election that Obama put on and, the, and that the Trump administration kept over Trump's own objections in some instances. But we didn't do that much. We didn't call him out forcefully. We didn't recognize it as a country. Uh, And so we had the ability to stand up to Putin at that point in time and tell him that you can't get away with this stuff and also warn the rest of the world. This is the type of thing this guy does. We all have to band together because if he does it to us, he's going to do it to you. And so I wrote a piece a few days ago saying how we let Ukraine and the world down. And it wasn't by what we did in policy in the last couple of years leading up to this moment, any of Biden's decisions. It was when we were attacked by Vladimir Putin, we did not fully acknowledge it or respond vigorously enough. And that's how we let ourselves down and let down the rest of the, the, the globe. Right. And, you know, you could argue that the ground was softened before that. Uh, with our very weak response to the invasion of Crimea and um, other mm-hmm. kind of, uh, I guess, in retrospect, you could say disastrous uh, inability to take advantage of super, uh, certain opportunities we might have had to crack down harder. But as you said in this recent article, you draw a straight line from 
our inability or unwillingness to protect ourselves in 2016. And I often thought like, okay, so McConnell said no. So what? Yes. All right. You can, the media will start out making a partisan thing, but if we have proof of something, if we can convince people, but it's almost as if McConnell said no. McConnell, the greatest traitor to this country since Robert E. Lee, said no. So we're not going to bother, which was quite infuriating. Um, But you also say, which I I found really interesting, that the real Russian con was Donald's claiming it was all hoax. Oh, yeah. I mean, because he kept saying it's a hoax, it's a hoax, it's a hoax. But that in and of itself was a hoax. The idea that there was a witch hunt was a hoax. I mean, if, you know, it's like arguing that, you know, if you, you know, it gets frustrating to argue that the sky is blue. But yep. every investigation that's looked into this, whether it was the House Intelligence Committee, even when it was run by Republicans, and the Senate Intelligence Committee, when it was chaired by a Republican, the intelligence community itself, Robert Mueller, uh, and several, they all say that Russian, uh, Russia attacked the United States. And they all describe exactly what it did. And it, it did even more in terms of the social media front with Facebook and YouTube and, and other things than we realized at the time, because it was beyond the, the, the hacking and the, and the leaking operation. But it, it, this happened. Okay, and but you know Trump just says it's a hoax, it's a hoax. Now some people might say, well, he's referring to the idea of collusion, that that that, that was the hoax. Well, absolutely, well, actually, no. Now was there a direct collusion in which he plotted together with Moscow? There's no evidence of that in terms of particulars, but we know from emails that. In early June 2016, the Trump campaign was told that the Kremlin wanted to help. They sent over an emissary, said she had dirt on Hillary Clinton, which you know they said was useless, if that's the case. But they're told in these emails, the Kremlin wants to help you. And even after that, anytime there's talk publicly about the Russian attack, they say, no, it's not happening. You're making this up. They are covering and denying an attack that they actually had more reason than anyone in the world to know was underway. And of course, Paul you know, Manafort, the campaign manager, was in touch with Konstantin Kalimnik, an old business partner, who now the U.S. government says was a Russian intelligence officer. Now, we still, a lot of that is still kind of murky, but there were many contacts between the Trump campaign and Russians while this was going on, but even just think about it, look at it, look at it, look at it this way. If you're Vladimir Putin and you're running this operation and you say it's not happening and Trump is out there saying, I'm, you know, it's not happening either. If I'm Putin, I'm saying Trump is giving me a green light. And of course right. he said he encouraged people. So there was, it, it happened. Trump, participated by aiding and abetting it, there was no hoax here. But yet they've done a great job, the Republicans, Jim Jordan and others, of trying to make it seem like it never happened, it was a witch hunt, and that this is all up for partisan debate. And they bring up the Steele dossier and other things that have nothing to do with the central elements of the case that Russia attacked, Trump denied and covered up. And that's, those things are undeniable, mm-hmm. and yet we still, as a country, uh, don't have a 
consensus narrative about this. There was no, in Watergate, eventually everyone came to believe there was a break-in. They were, you know, there were tapes that, that mysteriously got erased and that Nixon uh, helped cover up the investigation of the break-in, that he abused his office. That all, no one, people might argue how important it was, whether everybody did it, and it took some time for everybody to understand that was, that's what happened. Some Republicans and others didn't want to believe it and fought back. But eventually, I don't know, within a year, year and a half, whatever it was, mm-hmm. certainly within two years of the break-in, that was all agreed upon. Right. Five years you know, almost six years later, after what happened in 2016, the Republicans still have done a great job of making this an issue of contention. Yeah. And you, your most recent edition of your newsletter is called How the Right Went from Wrong to Crazy. And I want to talk to you about mm-hmm. that. But before that, you know, some of this is calculation, not craziness. Um, however, the context has changed. We're seeing now that the strong leader, almost every single elected Republican has been touting and supporting and um, holding up as uh, somebody to be admired is what most of us knew all along. He's a murderous dictator. Mm -hmm. He's probably insane. I'd love to hear your assessment of Putin's current behavior. And he is just, he's broken international law. He has um, initiated an unprovoked war of aggression uh, against a democracy. So did they, I understand what they're trying to do, but how did they get out from under that? How do they, in, in the span of a week, mind you, I think a week ago, well, you know, was still, you know, saying that Putin was great and so was Laura Ingram. How do we hold them accountable for that? Okay, well, there are two questions there. How do they get out from under it? And how do we hold them accountable? You know, how do they get out from under it? Well, they lie or they just don't, or they're just shameless. You know, it, it turns out if you're a human being without shame, you can get away with a lot. You can do mm-hmm. a lot. If you don't, it, it, I, 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 I've always said that Mitch McConnell's superpower is the inability to feel even a scintilla of hypocrisy. Right. I mean, you, you know, that's how he can get away with the Merrick Garland stuff. I mean, if you, if, you, if you don't feel shame, you can really go pretty far in this world, unfortunately. And I hope my kids aren't listening to this. Um, but, you know. It, They're probably it, so, not. Yeah, so, you know, so you look at someone like Tucker Carlson, who I used to, you know, do... Uh, shows with on CNN, and we always got along, and I always thought he was a a reasonable, mature adult. Um, like with so many things in the Trump era, I don't quite understand what's happened here to him and his sensibilities. Um, but but nevertheless, you know, he literally a few days ago was out there, you know, saying, "Why should I?" You know, you know, you know, Putin's never done anything wrong to me, bad to me. Why should I care about Putin? And, you know, he quickly is trying to scurry back to a position of, of some rationality and sense. But all these you know, but, you know, all these people, you know, were out there, you know, 
basically, if the left and the liberals and the Democrats are saying Putin is bad, they just reflexively have been saying, no, Putin's great, or he's not so bad, or don't make this about Putin. You know, you lost the election. That's nothing to do with Putin, whatever it is. It's Putin, Putin, Putin. It's Russia, Russia, Russia. And, um, and you know, for some, there is an ideological component to this. People like Steve Bannon and others who right. want to see, you know, whether it's Christian nationalism, white nationalism, anti, you know, you know, anti-immigrant populism, you know, they, they look at Putin and they've seen him as an ally. I mean, two or three nights or two or three days before Putin invaded, before he invaded uh, Ukraine illegally, as you know, and targeting civilians, committing, you know, uh, war crimes, in, you know, indiscriminate bombing of mm-hmm. civilian sites and killing kids. A few days before this began on his podcast, he and Eric Prince were on, and they were right. basically joking and go, well, you know, Putin's anti-woke. Yeah, and Putin doesn't like LGBTQ rights. And they, which is you know, a plus like, like, for them, you know, of course. Yeah, which, which, yeah, which was, like, they were saying this as a positive. Yeah. This is why they like Putin. And, you know, I, yeah, I've known Steve Bannon a few, you know, for years. I, I don't know Eric Prince, but I've known these, a lot of these people. And I, you know, I don't fully understand. I mean, I, you know, I know, you know, I didn't know your uncle, but my uncle worked for your uncle. And I, you know, and, and I, uh, you know, um, at Trump, at Trump, at the Trump organization, he was a lawyer there for. Did I not know that? Um, you may not, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. But, uh, cause I'll tell you the funny story about that. Um, but I've known, you know, whether it's Matt Schlapp and Mercedes Schlapp, who I used to be, you know, friendly with. I mean, I used to like having friends on the other side of, of the ideological aisle, who I would yep. argue with. I used to go to CPAC C- and get into fights with Wayne LaPierre, but it was always right. good-natured. Yep. Okay? And we disagree, and let's, let's have a decent argument. But I... That's right. And I always thought these people were wrong, mm-hmm. not crazy or evil, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> You know, exactly. Uh, I, I thought they were just wrong, and people were wrong, and you can still have a, you know having a relationship with someone who's wrong. But yeah. as but as I wrote, you know, in the piece that you just cite, if you look at CPAC of the last couple of days, in which you have people there, Marjorie, particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene, who had yeah. just been at a pro-Putin neo-Nazi rally, and then she gets hailed by Donald Trump. And you have people there like Donald Trump Jr., your cousin, coming out and like we're in the middle of the war. Nice. We're, we're in the middle of the middle of a war. And what does he start to do? He starts making. He comes out and the first thing he does, he starts making jokes or de, you know de, 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 uh, denigrating comments about Hunter Biden and his right. drug addiction. Uh, you know, it's like it's it's like yeah. Why? How would you think that was? appropriate thing to do while missiles are raining on civilians who are trying to protect and defend democracy against Putin. And you just, and and so it it seems to me that, you know, I wrote this piece that when you look at whether it's Steve Bannon or you look at, you know, the people who are at CPAC, they've gone from wrong to crazy. You know, and this is what, this all led by Donald Trump, but you can't blame Donald Trump 
because they're, they've all made this decision. And you go back to the yeah. 62, 74 million Americans who voted for Trump. And, you know, the problem, I've always said the problem is not Donald Trump. He, you know, he's a symptom. The problem are those 62 to 74 million Americans and all these conservative, you know, advocates who are, you know, fall in behind Trump. Yeah, I agree. I, I had uh, Tara Setmeyer on last week, former Republican strategist, now independent. And she said similar things. She was to be friends with Kellyanne Conway and she used to hang out yeah. with all those people, although she was on the same side politically and policy wise. Yeah. And I said to her, you know, you and I probably disagree about practically everything, except for the fact that we're both pro-democracy. And I think it is it is very important what you just said. Donald Trump didn't change anything. He just revealed the Republican Party mm-hmm. to be what it has been for a very, very long time. And, you know, you mentioned people like Schlapp and Bannon. I think some of them are just very happy they don't have to pretend anymore that they aren't white supremacist, homophobic, racist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and some of them are just opportunists, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you mentioned Steve Bannon's war room and you... <laughs> He said, you know, if some un- if your unkempt uncle were standing on a street corner screaming about this stuff, you might feel bad for him, but you wouldn't pay any attention to him. I, I too, have watched a little bit of Steve Bannon's. I couldn't handle it for more than two minutes, to be perfectly honest, because it, it made me, one, he made no sense. As you wrote, yeah. he's incoherent. He's just yeah. throwing out all these buzzwords. Two, it's boring. He's just rambling. Why? What is it? about the right, that their standards are so low that, that that Steve Bannon, of all people, is somebody who's actually changing minds. And you're right. It's not Donald's fault. It's not Bannon's fault, just as it isn't Rogan. I think it was um, Ellie Mistel on Twitter said, you know, it's not Seth Rogan's fault. These people were looking for him. He didn't change anybody. They sought yeah. him out. And the same could be said on the right. However, the people they choose to listen to are just... I don't even know well, what the well, words. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, we are learning a lot, unfortunately, about our fellow Americans, and it seems, in some ways, that you know, I, you know, I don't know if we fully processed it, that what drives people might not be economic interests, might not be political positions, um, even ideology, but for a lot, it just seems to be this sense of grievance cultural mm-hmm. grievance. You know, it's not, you know, you know, Trump was not brought to office by people who were pissed off because they didn't have better paying jobs. I mean, there were obviously some people in, in that category, but, you know, a lot of it is just people who are, you know, who are, who are angry at what they think are the enemies, liberals and academia and cult and, and Hollywood and, and 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 people who you know raise issues if you're racist or if you're homophobic or if you know like you know they, 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 why can't I use the N word as Joe Rogan kind of wants to do you know why can't you know why do I have to you know be polite to somebody who's gay, you know, why do I have to, you know, why, you know, and they feel, start feeling besieged and they, you know, that, that, that resentment part, you know, whether it's racial resentment, you know, cultural resentment becomes just this incredible driving force um, that leads to not productive policy discussions, but 
angry politics in which you demonize the enemy uh, rather than debate the enemy. And the most important thing is not even that you end up in a better position, but that somehow they end up in a worse position. Exactly. And that's, right, yep. right. And, and that's, yeah. you, know, you know, Heather McGee of Demos Project wrote a, wrote a book, you know, they yep. played off this wonderful metaphor, you know, not a metaphor, but she used it as an as the as organizing analogy. And I forget where it happened, but there, you know, someplace in the South, I presume, uh, where they opened up, you know, integrated swimming pools and the white population decided it was better to have, to, you know, they shut them down. They'd rather have no swimming pools. That's right. Then you know uh, if they had to be integrated, so they you know, their own interest of having a swimming pool was less you know where they put behind their grievance or their racial resentment to be to stay separate from the black community, um, and you know we're seeing a lot of that you know versions a lot of different versions of that type of thinking and feeling and emoting um, in, in the Trump years now, and. Um, I find that incredibly difficult in terms of figuring out how, what do you do with it? How do you respond to it? Because if you go out and say, but we have a better health care plan for you, or we have better retirement security, or how about universal pre-K, or how about expanding Medicare so that you get better dental coverage? I mean, in West Virginia, 25% of seniors don't have teeth. And so what if, what if we gave you, what if we gave you teeth? Wouldn't you like to have teeth? Um, I don't think that addresses some of these very strongly held impulses and feelings. Right, because um, they would say, well, are black people going to be able to get them too? Yeah, they might. Uh, I'd rather have no, I'd rather just have gums. Yeah, you know, and, and so now I think you still have to try because I think around mm -hmm. the edges you can get people like that. And I think there are Democrats, yeah. if they're, you know, who can sort of try to address these people in certain ways and sidestep some of the, the grievance-dominated politics. So, um, but I think ultimately the core of that part of America, you know, to use one of their words perhaps, needs to be segregated. I mean, we need to sort of, yeah. you know, ostracize, keep, you know, keep them down in terms of political power. And um, so we can deal with climate change, income inequality, um, better health care, mental health care, all these things that we need to, 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 to address. Because, you know, you see this amongst, you know, Republican members of Congress. I mean, are they proposing anything? I mean, no. are, are, you know, they, okay, they don't like Obamacare. Do they have something different? They don't like the infrastructure bill. Do they have something much different than that? I mean, yeah, they can propose, they propose different tax cuts, they always mm -hmm. proposing tax cuts, but you know climate change. Do they have any plan for that? No. So no. you know it's like okay, you, you know, in years past, Bob Dole and George McGovern would sit down together on some policy matters, healthcare, nutrition, you know, food security, and they would say, okay, what what do you want? What do I want? I hate that. You hate this. I'll drop this. You'll drop that. But you'll give me this. I'll give you that. And we'll come up with something that, that may not, you know, be perfect or, or fully address the issue, but it does something better than nothing. And we yeah, don't and have any of that now. We, we can't. They're a policy-free party. And they're, um, you said a lot there that is important for people 
to grapple with uh, because these are not normal times. Um, how do you work with a party that is all about grievance, is, has no policy? You can't. So you're right. I think they do. We need to contain them. As, and I, I think that, you know, that was the uh, one of the purposes of liberal democracy is you kind of, you know, that 22 to 26 percent of the population who are the worst among us. Yeah, they can vote, but you don't give them any real political power. But with Donald, uh, that that did that disease of white supremacy mm. did metastasize. I think that's the only way to explain that right. 74 million. Um, so we do need to figure out how to contain them again. But when you talk about grievance and you mentioned Donnie talking about Hunter Biden, proje projection is such an effective tool because, you know, clearly Donnie is going after Hunter Biden because he knows that he's the failed son yeah. uh, and he needs to deflect. But more broadly speaking, they are always accusing us of what they're doing. And how do you fight against that? Well, you know, you know Trump is a wonderful con man, as you, as you long know. And a lot of that you know, is is basically screwing with reality. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you have to be able to be, you have to be able to say things that you know are not true, or that are not true. I'm not sure whether you know or not, but with just c complete conviction. And mm -hmm. you have to have also willing marks who want who want to believe this. Um, yeah. So. You know, we you know, have a lot of marks out there, and he is has been, and the people around him have been willing to say anything. So they get out there, and they you know, and and while they're you know rigging the system in terms of voter suppression and trying to put people in charge of election counting, um, you know, they're out there accusing you know the Democrats. Of rigging the system. I mean, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and and, and 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 others keep saying, "I know, I know, the election was rigged." And then you say, you know, the simple question after that is, "How? Who right. did it? What's your proof?" And they will say, "I just know." Yeah. And you know, belief is more powerful than facts and information people people are saying yeah, people yeah people are saying people want to believe what they want to believe and you know and then to the next level is trump and others come out with these phony statistics well this happened that happened this happened that happened and if you know you can go and, and and debunk each and every one of them but it gets really exhausting he spent i don't know was it like an hour an hour and a half at the rally on january 6th going through every cockamamie false fact and statistic that he purported was proof that the election was stolen. And, yep. you know, who who has time to stand up there and say every single one of these things is are wrong, but even more importantly, the audience he's talking to won't hear that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of social science research of the last 10, 20 years shows us that if you confront people with evidence contrary to what they believe or what they want to believe, they actually dig in their heels more so. That's so, right. you know, so how, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tremendous paradox here. You know, we think, you know, then I'm a journalist. I, you know, I'm supposed to believe in the power of, of, of information and truth. But it turns out 
that if someone doesn't believe in climate change and you hand them the latest uh, reports from scientists, they read it and they even more believe what they their false belief from the, from the past because you're challenging yeah. them and so they hang on they hang on or they cling bitterly as Barack Obama might say to to these notions. Um, so it, it it means that a con man, be it you know um, P. T. Barnum or Donald Trump, really have you know, can have a strong advantage if they're selling something that somebody wants that you know, if someone wants if someone wants to believe it if, if you you know if you feel the urge to be racist and you want to you know you're going to you're going to listen to this if you you know if you if if you um you know think you you know the world's against you and someone comes along and says well the world is against you and these are the bad people and I'm going to beat them up and I'm going to be an asshole about it i remember i'll tell you you know something um um, a, a few months, a few weeks, a few months before Trump announced for president in 2015, I was talking to one of his key advisors, who I, you know, at that point I knew pretty well and was friendly with. And I, I said, okay, you know, all the things out there, all the opposition research and such, his connections to the mob, his personal life, his finances, his bankruptcies. What, you, what is it you're most worried about? You know, becoming a campaign issue and, and holding him back. And he said, none of it. I go, what do you mean, none of it? He goes, we're not worried about any of that. I go, well, why not? He goes, it's quite clear. Either voters are going to want an asshole to be their president or not. And so they, you know, that, that's, they, they're either going to want someone who you know, says the things he says, you know, gets in the fights he's gotten into, has unsavory connections, you know, you know, screws people over for his own benefit. They're either going to want someone like that fighting for them and beating up the people they don't like or not. Because, we, you know, we're not going to be able to present him as anything other than that. I mean, they were pretty clear on that. So, you know, they had, you know, he, they had not done any of their own opposition research. I mean... They probably would have preferred for the Access Hollywood tape not to come out, uh, but other than that, um, yeah, other than that, they you know they didn't seem to be worried about the real Donald Trump being revealed. Well, I think that was prescient, and I actually disagree. I think uh, the ultimately the Hollywood Access tape helped him because it was on brand, right? And yeah. I think the only thing the, that person got wrong is that uh, people were more interested in having somebody to beat up people they don't like than having somebody who would help them. Mm. But, you know, that's a different issue. I do want to talk to you about, um, you know, how things are go potentially going to play out in the next couple of years. But I want to get back to uh, Russia and Ukraine for a couple mm -hmm. of minutes. Um I hear people or I see people on Twitter often saying, you know, if Donald were still president, Putin never would have invaded Ukraine. And the answer, of course, is of course he wouldn't have, because Donald was doing a very good job trying to destabilize the Western alliance. I, isn't that right? I mean, it, I think yeah, Putin I mean, was getting it, it, so much out of that. Um, yeah, he was, he, was, he was, you know, denigrating NATO, talking about, you know, even 
pulling the U.S. out of NATO to some to some degree. Um, he was um, empowering or helping the illiberal forces that had been creeping into Europe, you know, particularly Orban in Hungary, who's now turned against Putin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he so. He, you know, they, they point to some of the sanctions against Russia, but a lot of those were, were as I said earlier, were enacted over Trump's objections. Right. Um, and, you know, he never really called for Putin to get out of U- Ukraine, which he had already invaded two years before um, the 2016 election. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and of course, you know, he let Putin off the hook for his own attack, for his own attack on his on, Trump's own country. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there's no, there's no telling what would have happened um, in this point, but it's pretty clear that the, you know, it, I mean, I, I, I reject the fact that this was precipitated, you know, entirely by Ukraine, you know, wanting to join NATO or, or, or the EU and move closer to the to the to the to the West. Of course, there is an element of that there. But had Trump been um, president, you know, or, 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 I mean, through those years, I mean, it would have been, I think, you know, harder for them to 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 try to even express that that thought because NATO itself. Would was right. was in was was would have been in more would have been, was in chaos. So um, exactly. if he was there, you know, and you know, he showed no signs of standing up to Putin. So if this is something that Putin wanted to do, and let's let you know, let's look at you know another example. You know, it's in a different part of the world, but when President Z, you know, was talking to Trump mm-hmm. and told him that he was going to round up the Uyghurs. And put them basically into concentration camps, according to John Bolton, who was there. He writes about this in his own book. Trump said, "Fine, do what you got to do." So here was a you know a, a repressive leader about to uh, engage you know up you know you know amplify or up the ante on the on the genocide underway in China, and Trump didn't tell him no, didn't stand up to him. Um, so you know, it's this is certainly in the category of it's pretty to think so, um, and they, you know, but um, you know, Bolt, John Bolton was 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 on TV today or yesterday, you know, saying that Trump barely knew where Ukraine was and didn't care about it. You know, the only thing that was important to him about Ukraine was getting squeezing it to get dirt on Joe Biden. Um, yeah. You know, again and again and again through that whole. Affair. We have people, you know, who from the White House and the administration, who you know say that Putin didn't really care about Zelensky or fortifying Ukraine against um, Russian aggression. Um, he thought Ukraine was kind of corrupt and that and and that they were against him in some ways. And he believed these conspiracy theories that the DNC servers really ended up in Ukraine. All this complete bogus crap. Um, so he was always suspicious of the Ukrainian government and Zelensky didn't really care about it, just saw them as a as, as someone he could lean on. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, they're, they're going to say these things. They're going to say these, they, they're going to say that, you know, you know, we're talking 
um, you know, prior to the State of the Union. And they're going to, they, 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 the Republicans are out there saying, you know, the country's a mess. It's terrible. The State of the Union sucks. <laughs> well, go back just a year. And if you just want to use, you know, two metrics, there are more people with jobs now and fewer people who are sick with COVID. Right. Okay, so just the two things that were, that were destroying the country or really hurting us a year ago are better now. Now, you, is that all Biden's doing? Yeah, you can, I'm not going to say it is, but you know they're you know want us to believe that when COVID was running rampant, when we all were all were locked up for you know not to figure out wearing masks in outdoor places when we couldn't leave our homes and the economy was cratering and people didn't have jobs children couldn't go to school school, and if you got sick no one could come help you i mean they're saying that that was better than what we have today that trump handled covid correctly um i mean they're gonna say of course they are and that just as they're saying that it's because biden is so weak that Putin decided this was the perfect opportunity to invade Ukraine, which we also know is total bullshit, because these are the same people, we need to remind everybody, who could have gotten rid of Donald for betraying his own country by trying to um, withhold funds from Ukraine if they didn't dig up dirt, as you mentioned, on uh, the person by Donald perceived to be his greatest political opponent, Joe Biden. Um, but it also, not that not that Republicans care about what's actually happening, but I am curious because, yes, Americans care about the economy. They care about mostly the economy, almost the exclusion of everything yeah. else. But they also do care about, uh, some of us anyway, care about our health and the health of our children and fellow citizens. But I'm wondering... Um, because of what's happening in Ukraine right now and because so much is being revealed about uh, the cynicism of the Republican Party, do you think that this might be an opportunity to help Americans understand how important foreign policy is and, and diplomacy? And how do you think Biden has been doing on that score in terms of rebuilding the alliance and using diplomacy uh, to get the country's standing back up? Well, I think he's done a good job of restoring, you know, the relationships that were deteriorating, due, you know, due to Trump, um, particularly in, in Europe. And I think the Europeans probably like dealing with a grown-up. And I think during the Ukrainian crisis, um, it seems to me that he's done a pretty good job of helping to lead the, you know, unified response. And I've been very... Um, you know, somewhat surprised to see some of the, the very swift changes in European attitudes towards sanctions and coming down hard on Putin. Um, yeah. Not, not you know, not in terms of direct military confrontation, but just right. you know uh, whether it's going after after oligarchs and doing some. You know, you know, I know Ukrainians believe that um, there are still more room here for tightening the screws further. Um, but, you know, to get to this point, and one really has to wonder to what degree, you know, Trump would have been interested in this if, um, if, if he were in the office now. Uh, so I think Biden's done a, you know, a relatively, you know, good job here of, 
you know, of moving quickly and, and working with allies. And particularly since, you know, the Europeans who are hit more by the blowback from sanctions than, than we are, we, we will get some of that, you know, letting them sort of lead in a sense. You know, they have to, you know, we can't drag them into this. It won't work. There'll be too much friction and, 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 and loopholes and, and dissent. And, but having, you know, but they've, they've moved very fast and there's yeah. been a tremendous amount of solidarity. And I, I think, you know, Biden needs to, you know, in terms of politics back home, just continually tell the story of what's happening about, you know, about we have to have a, an alliance of democracies in this in this in this in this world that the democracy is always under attack, and that for you know helping other democracies is good for us, and that it may take a sacrifice in some ways, you know with us, we're not sending troops and we're not putting lives on the line, but maybe um, if we have tough sanctions, um, gasoline prices will go up, and you know you talk about, you know, all the great patriots patriots out there who talk about how much they love America and make America great and, and they, you know, that's all they care about. They, they would give their life for America. Well, if you would give your life for America, you know, maybe, you know, an extra 50 cents a gallon. Now, I realize there are people out there for whom that is a tremendous burden, you know, for economically. Right. I mean, I, I barely drive during COVID. Um, I won't, right. I, I personally won't feel it that much, but I know for some people in rural America, particularly, it, it, it is it is a, a burdensome. But um, yep. but at the same time, it, it is you know uh, you know it is it are it's the Democrats who over the last 10, 20, 30 years, who are giving more you know bigger tax breaks to middle income Americans and tax credits to low income Americans, and so if we're going to you know bear the brunt here, you know, having a progressive tax policy that maybe helps people, you know, uh, you know, a payroll tax, you know, reduction or freeze to help with, you know, the tax with the gas bill might be uh, smart as well. Uh, But, you know, you got to just tell, he has to just continually tell his story and make it real for people. I mean, Zelensky is helping a lot. I think there's a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of solidarity around the world, which yeah. is truly heartening to see. And and Biden needs to, you know, connect Americans with all that. And he could, it's also a perfect opportunity, not that this has anything to do with Ukraine, but gas prices go up. Guess, guess what, guys? We have something called Build Back Better that would have helped you in times when the economy isn't so great or gas is more expensive, but every single Republican voted against it, et cetera, just as almost every single Republican um, is, has been on Putin's side until five minutes ago. Uh, so I think there are a lot of opportunities there, but I'm wondering, um, you know, I, I know that there's probably some frustration that that troops aren't being sent in by NATO, but there are obvious reasons that can happen. Do you think um, that even though the sanctions and some of the moves like vis-a-vis SWIFT and uh, the seizing of assets, which I think is really important and will work more quickly, but do you think that maybe it's going to have to be uh, people surrounding Putin to make him stop in whatever way that's going to happen? You know... I'm not a Putin expert, not a criminologist. I know a little bit about Russia from 
you know, working on the book I did. Um, and I think at this stage, I mean, I listen to a lot of people. I talk to mm-hmm. a lot of people. And it seems that nobody has a good idea. <laughs> you know, what, what, what Putin, you know, what, what, what yeah. you know, at least in terms of how Putin envisions the end game here. I mean, you think about Ukraine, you know, you think about how do you, how does, how does, how, how does one occupy a country uh, if its population is opposed to you in this day and age? When there's yeah. social media, when they have, when you know, is is he really going go in there and create an East German-like state? I mean, that's, I mean, for me, that's just too much work. I mean, yeah. that's a, that's just like a lot of work. I mean, that's going to require hundreds of thousands of people, you know, uh, doing things, and and I, and, and you know. Well, even, you know, what, what are your odds of success? I mean, they, 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 you know, Afghanistan was a much different type of project, but they, mm-hmm. they failed there, of course, after, you know, being, being in there for, you know, I don't know, was it 15 years or so, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's so, so does he think he can just, or does he, or is Belarus the the model that he thinks he can go and put in a puppet regime and that the people there will not rise up against it and to keep mm-hmm. that puppet regime and I mean look look what happened you know Ukraine has a pretty good history of rising up against people you know dictators or corrupt leaders they did this in 2014 um, so I I think right now as uh, per you know, as of this nanosecond you and I are talking. That the big question is, how does Putin see this possibly conceivably ending? Uh, yeah, I and, think the problem is. I don't know when anyone knows. No, I think the problem is that he totally miscalculated and now has put him in itself in a position, which is actually the position I thought Donald was in in the fall of 2020. Uh, if he thinks he's going down, he's going to take all of us down with him, which is kind of a grim thought. But I want to shift. I have two questions that I always like to end this with. But before we get to that, I do really quickly want to ask you um, about the Republican Party going forward in the next couple of years. Do you think that the Republican Party, or let me say, put it this way, Trumpism, so-called, uh, needs Donald or has it has they demonstrated that they don't need him to perpetuate um, the kinds of I don't know if you want to call it governance, but the kind of politics that he espoused? Yeah, I think Trump. Yeah. And I always say Trumpism is the issue, not Trump. Um, right. I, I, I think Trumpism is not going away. I mean, I think it will go away or will diminish if you just look at it demographically. It's. A lot of old white people, not all, but that's, you know, predominantly or a good part of it. And so, you know, there will be a demographic shift due to the, you know, nature of, of biological um, um, you know, laws if we, you know, if we don't blow ourselves up before that. Um, you know, his, his you know, the, you know the, the Trumpist block in America is just getting older and less healthy. Um but it's you know, ha- you know having gotten to this point, if you you know if you look at you know you know this coming from the Palin rallies to the Tea Party to where we are now, um, it's very hard to see it 
going, you know, reversing course. And so mm-hmm. even if Trump doesn't run or he, something happens to him, um, you see, you know, this is where all the energy is in the Republican Party, whether it's DeSantis or somebody else trying to, you know, capture this, this politics of, of grievance and resentment you know, racism, homophobia, whatever you, however you want to see it. And, you know, I don't see, like, the moderate Christine Todd Whitman or even the Chris Christie coming back and saying, oh, you know, I can, I can play on this field now. I, I, I think it's totally tilted and it's not going to, yeah. you know, it's not changing. Yeah, I agree. I, the one thing, though, that... Um I'm not so sure about is I look at the field and there's, I can't think of one person who has that. I hate, I it's charisma. Donald has charisma, uh, whether we like it or not. No, does anybody on that side have that? Because I think that seems to be one of the main things he has going for him. Yeah. But I, I think there'll be, whether it's, you know, you know, Nomi from um, Nome from South Dakota. Uh, Christy Nome. Christy Nome. Um, yeah. I mean, there are, you know, you know, DeSantis doesn't have charisma, but he is very crafty. And the thing mm-hmm. is, like, you know, it won't, someone's not going to, you're not going to replace Trump with Trump. You're going right. to replace Trump with someone who is better in certain ways and worse in certain ways. I mean, imagine if Trump had a true attention span and was less impulsive. I mean, just those two things alone would have made him so much more dangerous. And sure. so whether you have like someone like DeSantis, who may not have the charisma and the showmanship, but who uh, has impulse control and a, a wiliness that, that, you know, that, that's more disciplined, uh, you know, could make up for not being this, as, as good a carnival barker as Trump is. Yeah, well, that's we're in for a rough ride, which is saying something because uh, we've been yeah. on a rough ride for a long time now. And that brings me to the next couple of questions, because, you know, as a journalist, you're mired in things in a way that most people aren't. Um, and, you know, since I've sort of been mired in it a bit myself, I it's, <laughs> it can be exhausting and demoralizing. Yeah. So what. Uh, what gives you hope and how do you hang on to it under the circumstances? Um, that's a very good question. Um, sometimes it's just blind false hope. <laughs> just hope for hope's sake. You know, it's like, why not hope? Because, you know. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, because it's just as easy to hope as to not hope, you know. Exactly. Um, right? So, you know, why, you know, why, um, you know wallow? Um, I mean, right. it, it, so I mean, part is just, you know sentiment, but and temperament. But I, I, it's um, I mean, the, the one sign of hope is that there are still more of us than them. Okay, right. so like, remember after the after the twenty sixteen election, everyone said, "Oh, well, how could we be in a bubble? We're in a bubble. It's so terrible. We're in a bubble." I'm saying, your bubble's bigger, and right. your bubble's better. Okay, right. and your bubble, you know, you know, isn't based on hate and grievance. Um, so there is still, you know, the political system is structured in a way that, you know, certain minority interests end up having disproportionate power. 
and that's bad. There's a there's a systemic um, and institutional roadblocks to having the more of us, you know, implement and and, and address our values. Uh, but but so but but nevertheless, uh, we're not in a position where you know we're we're in a minority. So there's that gives you at least a a fighting chance, and you know I I. I I mean that's kind of the you know I guess the best ray of hope I can hang on to even though you don't hang on to rays, um, and you know and you know and I do think you know if you look demographically you know I don't want to sound all or or all clicheish about young people, but um, you know demographically young you know the generations coming up. Are smarter, smarter, more tolerant, better. You know, you know, care more about you know addressing climate change and uh, and willing to you know do what has to be done. So I'm hopeful that if we can prevent, you know, you know permanent damage or ultimate damage, yeah. that you know maybe the, the next you know line or two coming up can make some progress. Yeah, and and it is extraordinary that the generations coming up are so um, determined, given the terrible hand we've dealt them. It, that it, that does inspire hope, actually. Um, David, I am so grateful that you came on today. There's a lot going on, and I've always appreciated your perspective and your the depth and the breadth of your knowledge. So everybody, please read. David's work at Mother Jones, you're really prolific. I was trying to look back <laughs> at some of the articles that you wrote before the 2016 election. It took me like an hour and a half to get to them. <laughs> um, and our land is exceptional. Um, yeah, people, so, people, let me tell people can go to, yeah, Dave, exactly. Just go to davidcorn.com. If you, that's corn over the sea, if you don't know, davidcorn.com. And you can sign up for a free trial subscription to uh, our land. Uh, and if you want to start paying right away, you can do that too. But why not get it free for a couple of weeks and then decide to subscribe? Yeah, and it's worth every penny, honestly. Um, I, it's one of my go-tos. Uh, how do people find you on social media if you're on social yeah, media? Well, yes, they can find me on Twitter at David Korn DC. Add the DC to the end of David Korn because someone beat me to David Korn. <laughs> Um, Damn them! So yeah, so that's that. I have a Facebook page. Uh, if you, if that's what you want to look, you can find me some, by searching me on Facebook. Um, find the Facebook page. But really, um, I'm happy to see you on Twitter. I'm happy to talk to you through the newsletter, which has a lot of audience interaction that comes with it. Excellent, David. Thank you so much again, and uh, we'll have to have you back on later. Sure, always great to talk and talk to you and see you, Mary. Good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Okay, now it's time for me to answer your questions. I love hearing from you. So if you have anything you want to ask me, please send an email to mary at politicon.com and I'll get to as many of your questions as I can next week. Uh, this is from Janet in Esquimalt, British Columbia. In Canada, we are having several trucking protests that are receiving a lot of money. The Canadian banks have done an audit and they say that well over half the support money is coming up for the United States. 
why would the U.S. support our trucking protests? Uh, the U.S. is not supporting your trucking protests. The uh, right wing, the Republican Party, is supporting your trucking protests because it creates chaos. Uh, it's a tool that they can use um, to make it seem like uh, our democratically elected leaders are weak, um, to make it seem like things are out of control, um, all in the guise of pretending that their civil rights are being trampled upon or their constitutional rights are being trampled upon. Because I guess the ostensible reason for the protest uh, was vaccine mandates, which, as we know, is complete bullshit. Um, luckily, though, um, it seems that that whole thing has gone nowhere. Uh, I, they're, the latest one from California was supposed to be in D.C. in time um, for President Biden's State of the Union, and I, I just think they just couldn't get enough people together. What a shame. Uh, okay, from Marilyn. Don't you think it's time for Schumer and Pelosi to step down? We need new young blood. Why won't they say we have inflation because of corporate greed and gouging? I could go on, give me some hope. Um, I, I think we could have a better Senate majority leader than Chuck Schumer. Um, you know, I, there are times when I'm quite honestly mystified by his his seeming willingness willingness to work with the other side or, um, in other words, to act as if we don't have the majority in the Senate, which we do. Um, I know it's razor thin, but it's a majority. And I, I just don't think he's effective. Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, is the, the greatest Speaker of the House in my lifetime, for sure. Uh, she has accomplished so much. Um, she understands politics like I probably like nobody else. Uh, you know, she is a master of her craft. And as long as she's willing to remain Speaker of the House, I see no reason that she should step down. Um, you know, she she keeps her caucus unified. And as we know, being in the Democratic Party, I mean, be, being a leader in the Democratic Party is is dealing with a, a very broad and diverse coalition. It's like herding cats, and yet she manages to do it time and time again. Um, I think as, as far as inflation goes, that, yeah, um, corporate greed um, and price gouging, but the simplest, because we need to keep it simple right now, um, especially given the fact that the Republican Party is running with uh, the inflation stupidity, is that it's rising worldwide. No one person can have any impact on inflation right now. So, uh, and again, um, if we want to help people deal with inflation, we should pass Build Back Better, which not one single Republican wants to do. From Chris, I get so many requests for money for candidates. I'm never sure what is and is not a scam. Like Donald's crap scams to rip people off. How do I tell? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, you need to find established entities like Act Blue, uh, so you can be assured that your money is going where they say it's going. Um, but it is—it's it, a very good question. And I'm, I'm actually trying to figure out 
ways to um, make it easier for people, one, to identify which races that are most worth uh, supporting or what candidates are most worth supporting and what races are most worth uh, donating to. Um, and also, you know, how to find organizations that are doing a really good job and who, you know, um, spend as much of the money they receive as possible after uh, overhead um, for the purposes in which it was given. From Anastasia, I understand free speech, but if you can't scream fire in a theater, shouldn't there be a similar case for news reporting? If it's not the FCC's job, is it anyone's? Yeah, I, I've wondered about this. Um, I have lawyer friends who tell me it's a First Amendment issue and it's uh, curtailing such speech as a slippery slope. But on the other hand, I think that outlets like Fox use that as cover to be to spread as much misinformation as humanly possible. You cannot tell me that Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or Laura Ingraham are journalists. You know, these are, these are show hosts, game show hosts, you might say. Uh, they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in facts. They're interested in ratings and they're interested in, in creating as much division and chaos in this country as possible. Um, I think mostly because it's good for their bottom line, but also because um, Rupert Murdoch is one of the most evil people in the world and he's done the most to uh, weaken, if not destroy, democracy in Australia, the United States and Great Britain. I, I don't know. I, I think it would be up to Congress to reinstate something like the fairness doctrine, but I'm not really sure how they would go about that. I don't think they can uh, at the moment because things are just too evenly divided. We need more, we need uh, larger majorities in both the House and the Senate. From Lori in Mumbai, given the current climate, do you truly believe the division in the US is reparable in our lifetime? Yeah, I do. Um, if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, I wouldn't be speaking to people like David Korn or Tara Setmeyer um, or Malcolm Nance um, because not believing that is to give up hope. Um, so I refuse to cede any ground to anybody. I refuse to say it's over before it's over. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. But as David said uh, during our interview, there are more of us than there are of them. Um, you know, it doesn't always seem like it. They're louder, they're meaner, they don't play by any rules that uh, civilized people would want to play by. And also, as David mentioned, they're trying to rig the system in a way that... Um, renders us weak and erases our voices. But to think that, that the situation is irreparable, I think also gives them power. Um, so I am going to fight until um, 
there's no point in fighting anymore, but I also don't believe that's ever going to happen. I mean, I have a kid. I, I refuse to um, concede that this Republican Party, these fascists, are going to destroy my country and our democracy simply because they want nothing but power and um, don't care about other human beings. I, I am not for one second going to allow that to happen insofar as I can have anything to do with it. Thank you so much for watching this episode of The Mary Trump Show with me, Mary Trump. And thank you to my guest, the great David Korn of Mother Jones and our land for joining me today. It was an incredible conversation. I'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions for me for next week's episode, you can send me an email at mary at politicon.com. I love answering your questions, so keep them coming, please. And please watch us on YouTube. You can get there by going to youtube.com slash Politicon. And don't forget to like and subscribe. And also, please click the bell, because that way you'll be sure to get every new episode as it drops. You can also listen on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, except, of course, Spotify. And be sure to give us a five-star review, because it really helps other people find the show. Thank you again for joining us. I will see you next week. Stay safe.